welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer you live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Review, ZDNet, and many publications. He's a sought-after uh, keynote speaker, travels around the globe, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to episode 171 of Disrupt TV. Happy holidays, episode 171, with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. Uh, he is one of the top follows on Twitter for CEOs, CIOs, and CMOs. He's a frequent guest on Bloomberg BNN in Canada and all the TV shows, an author himself, but more importantly, he is a kind individual. So but we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the world, and we've got some awesome guests as we get to our second to last episode for Disrupt TV for 2019. Who do we have for episode 171 to kick it off? We are super fortunate. Speaking of awesome guests, uh, our first guest is Jana Eggers, CEO of a neuroscience-inspired artificial intelligence platform company, Nara Logics. Uh, Jana began, uh, brings over 25 years of technology and leadership experience to Nara Logics from companies like Intuit, Lycos, American Airlines, Los Alamos National Laboratory. Jana's been working on AI for 30 years. So apparently she started when she was five and several startups. On, on her journey. Uh, she's a frequent speaker, writer, mentor to AI uh, and, and startups. She's a marathon runner. In fact, this morning she ran a half a marathon. She's dialing in from Dubai. So it's midnight and we're so fortunate to have her with us. You can follow her work and incredible thought leadership on Twitter at J Eggers, J-E-G-G-E-R-S. Welcome, Jana, to Disrupt TV. Thank you guys for having me. I'm here with two of my favorite people. Vala asks the most amazing questions all the time. Uh, and, uh, and then and seeds that inspiration throughout many, many other people. Uh, and, and Ray, I've known for many years, and I absolutely agree. He's one of the futurists, but and, and, and in addition to that, he just knows so much about what's actually going on in the industry. So he sees that future, but he brings it to where it is now and what to do about it now. So he's someone that I rely on regularly when I need to know, when I have a question about, I'm seeing this, I don't quite understand it. He can put it in its place. Me too, me too. Boy, hey, so kind, so kind. Hey, you've been a pioneer in the world of AI and you know, you've gone through many AI winters. And the reason I want to bring that perspective is we see booms and busts in technology. You've been riding, uh, you've been surfing most of them. And uh, I think really important is what's changed since the last boom? And is this one going to stick? Uh, because it's looking good. Uh, and I think a lot of people are getting a little bit confident, but it sounds like it's being embedded in our lives. So let's let's start there. What's Where, where are we right now? So I think what's most exciting to me. So so the reason why I haven't been on all the highs and lows of AI is for me, AI has just always been one of a tool that I could use. And I was fortunate because, you know, in the early days I started out at the lab and we had access to all the data and the compute power that we needed. And and I never had to worry about, oh, is this enough or anything like that? Because it was it was all there. And so that's really the key to what's happening now is um, 
the the compute power obviously has uh, grown, but it's also become more accessible. You know, when I was out at the lab um, for every few months, I'd have to write a proposal for being able to use the supercomputers and get <laughs> permission, but I'd also have to pay several million dollars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I calculated, this was a few years ago, I calculated, it was like, you know, what I was paying a few million dollars for, it's about 500 bucks for now. Um, so, so that's pretty amazing when you consider, I mean, granted that was 30 years, but it's still pretty amazing the, um, what's happened there. And, and then the other thing is data and it, the internet brought us all that data and, and that's what researchers and I'm, I wasn't someone researching AI. I always call myself an AI pr practitioner, not a researcher, because I just use it as a tool to solve my problem. So, so that's a very long-winded answer to say data and compute power, what's driven, what's happening today. And what's key about that answer is to Ray, your question of, um, are we going to go through another winter? I highly doubt it. And, and the reason why is there's so much out there that people can continue make faster advances than we could before. So we're going to be able to do a better job of keeping up with expectations. And that's what would happen is people would get all hyped about AI, but then their expectations would be, um, you know, never met. And I think with so many people working on it and doing the research, as well as people like me applying it and really seeing results, that's why we're not going to enter another, you know, a, a, another space where AI is just people leave it and stop funding it and walk away. Yeah, I mean, I, I often uh, glance at Venture Scanner looking at the number of AI startups and about 2,800 that fetched over 75 billion in funding in, in recent years. Um, so, and that number, continues to grow based on my estimate, we're gonna cross hundred billion next year. Um, so, so you have this incredibly awesome responsibility of guiding some of the biggest companies and some of the you know, incredible successful startups in terms of how they can bring AI into production, how can they accelerate the digital transformation? You know, what do these clients need to start? And then you said you're a problem solver so what are these CEOs of these companies that you engage with? What are the problems they're trying to solve? Do they appreciate and fully understand the power of ML and, and you know, the ability to really uh, glean insights that they've never had before um, without use of AI? So I'm gonna give you the big secret to AI. It's all about chicken, eggs, and bacon. It's an easy way to remember it. Chicken, eggs, and bacon, all right. I'm hungry. That's what, see, this is what I tell CEOs and they can remember this, right? As a CEO, I'm not, that's not a slam on CEOs. It's like, we all need things that we can remember quickly because we've got so much going on. So the chicken is your algorithm, the eggs are your data, and the bacon is your results. And that's what I call the trinity of AI. You can't separate those three things. You have to have all three. And most people think of AI as the chicken, the algorithm, mm. but what CEOs really, you know, you don't need to know, you need to ask some questions about your algorithm. Like, for example, is it transparent or not? Or can we get it to be transparent? And there's a lot going on in transparency, even in deep learning, which is the most black box. Um, you know, when I was out at Los Alamos, I had this challenge because I would have material scientists looking at me and saying, well, why is that the best? And I'm like, well, it just is. <laughs> and so that's when I learned about sensitivity analysis and, and going into that to understand what the neural net was actually doing. 
And then um, the second thing is the data. And the one thing that I'd say about the data is um, people always think it's about a whole bunch of data um, and it, it's really more, it, it's about the volume. And A, there's a lot of algorithms that are working now on needing less volume of data, but it's also important to have the variety in there. So as an example with um, uh, some of our customers, they have a lot of sensor data, so from IoT devices. So think of a factory. I have tons of sensor data now that's coming in from thousands of sensors that are around. But I also have maintenance reports, and the oh, amount yeah. of data of the sensor stuff compared to the maintenance reports, those maintenance reports end up getting lost. So how do you have a system that balances both and can listen to a maintenance report at the same time as listening to you know, lots of data and, and the way we talk about because we come from neuroscience is it's, it's um, you know, when I have precedent and when I need to pull analogies because analogies are what the brain uses when it doesn't have the exact precedent. I haven't seen this before, right? Hmm. So that's the data part. And so I tell people, stop worrying about getting data from other places, focus on the data you have. It's just probably gonna be a different perspective. And then the last thing, particularly for you know, CDOs, CMOs, um, uh, CEOs, they need to really think about the results they're asking it for. And this is that law of unintended consequences, right? <laughs> I may be optimizing for one thing, but I'm gonna get another. Have we thought about those other things? What, what actually could go wrong? What, um, what could go right, but too far right? Um, all of that that you need to worry about. So just keep your chicken, eggs, and bacon in, in, in mind and walk through those and talk with your team about it so you really understand what you have and what you need. And, and how, much of the, how much of the bacon is new business model innovation opportunities where there's potential incremental revenue for new, from new capabilities versus optimizing, automating, and efficiency and, and, and really migrating from legacy processes to, to more you know, modern way of doing things? See, this is why you ask the best questions. <laughs> is, I love is, bacon. I love <laughs> Exactly, bacon. Uh, there's a theme. Everybody's going to get in on the bacon theme later on, too. But, uh, That's but, awesome. Um, the, the, I always tell people to start with an optimization problem. And the reason why is most of the time they've already been trying to do some of that optimization. So they're more familiar with the data and they're more familiar with the problem or the results they're trying to drive. And I really think that's a great place to start. It's much harder to start with a new business model because there's so much that has nothing to do with the AI that you're trying to figure out, right? So, so you start with something you know better and start walking <laughs> with AI. And then you can transition into, whoa, I'm not going to walk anymore. You know, I'm going to jump on a hoverboard, um, which is that new business model. It, it's not even like what my walking is not going from walking to running. It's going from walking to something completely different. And you really should have some experience with that walking first. And once in a while, that hoverboard might explode, but don't worry about that. Uh, you'll, you'll figure it out. So but hey, let's, let's talk about this. Let's just keep building on this. It's, it's interesting. Like we are walking into that sentient future. Right, it's one of our big things for our 10th anniversary for our Constellation Connected Enterprise 2020. You've been a frequent guest of the event. Uh, and in that sentient future, we've got to ask some questions, right? And if you understand those processes or those um, those motions that you've been going through, then we can figure out these questions. And, and, and Rich is, most of our clients are asking, hey, 
when do I fully automate? When do I augment with a human? And when do I use a human or apply a human uh, to make those decisions? Do you have any advice for people around that? Yeah, it's funny. We were just talking with one of our customers uh, just this morning about exactly this because they're rolling into production. This is rolling into um, a plant manager situation. And uh, they said, so, so one of the things about our platform is that we don't just say this is the one answer. We give um, a range of options as yep. far as what the answer may be. In this case, it's uh, um, predicting quality. And they're very happy with the quality we're predicting. And, and in their case, we were saying, okay, do we give them three or five options? And then with those, how many, because we have transparency, how many why reasons, we call them why, why is this the right answer? And so we give um, the why reasons and we we're talking about, well, do we also give three or five why reasons? You know, which ones do we give? What's most important? And so um, I, I think that, you know, from my experience everywhere from, like I said, the material scientists that I worked with, I worked in logistics, I've worked in search engines, you know how many results we give, 10 on the first page. <laughs> uh, I, I, it depends on your application and how much they're going to be able to research. And so, you know, we as humans, options can confuse us sometimes. Oh, yeah. And not having any also makes us angry. So, so it's a balance. And so my experience has been, it's going to be somewhere from three to five, unless you have something that's easily scannable, like a, like a search results page, right? Which is easily scannable to, did this headline meet mine or not? And so I would look at that when you say, um, you know, how do we get started? Get started by giving them some explanation around what you're giving, which means options oftentimes that some of the differentiation between those options. And then once they start seeing, hey, this is, you know, I, I don't want to see these when we're in this situation and the quality is running normal, I don't even want to see those. And that's kind of automated. The, the machine can fine tune the things that it needs to. But when it starts getting way out of whack, I want to see that. And I want to be the one that turns the big knobs, just not the little ones because they're not that important. But when something starts going way off course, I, I need a human involved with that. And I, that's what I've seen in several cases. Like I said, I worked in logistics and it was the same thing there. We started with a human re review everything and approve it. And we went to um, only 15% were reviewed by humans. But that was only usually after a couple of years of being in production and it went on a it went on a slope of you know not sure not sure not sure then all of a sudden it was like i'm tired of looking at these they're always right you actually triggered something here that's the interesting thing when we get to voice and voice assistance i don't think we can get to three search results you're like it's like waiting for like ivr you are queued from hell right mm -hmm. so you might not even get to two right so this is gonna be very interesting to see the choices and i wonder how much is other for your feet putting back you know training data back into the system so like, nope, none of these. <laughs> so. I love that point too, which is you've got to have feedback. If you don't have feedback, people quickly lose faith. Um, and even the ability, not just feedback as in all three of these were wrong, but just like that one I know is wrong and I know it's wrong for this reason. Um, yes. You know, the sensor is out, for example, and the machine's not taking into account. And that ability to go in and say, you know, if I ignored that sensor, what are the new results? Churn through again and tell me what the new results are. Yeah, I mean, you know, so you, you, you earlier talked about, uh, you know, transparency, explainability. I 
Oops, I lost Vala. Ray, can you still hear me? Yeah, I lost Vala a little bit. Uh, I think uh, Vala oh. comes through. Uh, oh. Go again. Can you hear me now? Yep, we can hear you. Let's go. Yeah, sure. So, so, you know, we talked about transparency and explainability. So my question is, how much time do you spend with your clients assessing their core values, guiding principles, the health of their culture, because this um, ethical and humane use of technology is going to become more and more uh, of, of a priority, boardroom priority, in my opinion, not just CEO. So as we continue to automate and rely on algorithms, the chicken, the egg, the bacon, all of that, it, it needs to, you know, it needs to make sure that, you know, when you consume all of that, you're healthy. <laughs> so ethical and humane use of technology, how much of your time is spent really coaching CEOs and your clients to understand the importance of not drifting away from your brand promise by you know relying on 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 this incredibly advanced emerging technology like machine learning as an example um it's a place i spend a lot of time on in general for um you know executive level education to, because they are often used to if they're not nerds you know i'm a nerd so I'm <laughs> if they're not nerds they're used to trusting their technology people and they definitely should trust their technology people this isn't about that it's just that again you know the tech is the chicken but i have the eggs and bacon and they have a big impact on the eggs and bacon and they they need to understand that more and so i spend a lot of time explaining to them and giving them a lot of examples of this went wrong because of the data this went wrong because of the results and giving them those examples and they're like whoa now i get it so give them examples which helps a lot but the biggest thing you know where we start with all of our customers is the results have to be better so no one cares about the transparency and the ethics if the results aren't better so i'm never going to implement it so we absolutely always start number one without any doubt can this give you a better result than where you are now then right. it goes into the transparency <laughs> and, the, and what's great for me is the transparency actually helps answer some of those ethics questions as to what's being used how is it being used what does it look like is that really a decision that we want to make based on that data so i'm i'm we benefit from we already have the second question answered Right. And then the question is, people don't want the black box, uh, but they only care about the black box if they don't agree with the answers. So it's, it's actually very interesting to watch where they're trying to get to the fine tuning. Uh, two, two questions I'm going to get to. We're almost out of time in a sense, but, but where are we on AI ethics? Are we getting anywhere better there? And then I want to talk about the tech scene in Boston. So, uh, so let's hit those. If we can get... Yeah. So just really quickly, I, I think people are talking about it more. I do worry that it's going a bit the same way as diversity um, has gone, which is we've all seen that we get the diversity training and um, it actually makes us think, oh, check, I've gotten it and it makes mm -hmm. it worse, right? And so um, I do think we need to challenge ourselves a bit more on that, but there's some amazing people that are working on it. Um, and, and so I, I think we'll get through it, but I do worry. That's the big worry that I have, that we're just checking boxes and we don't understand the impact. And right, then, we get policies um, that have like weird ramifications 10 years from now, 
where like, you know, I was sitting, but go ahead. Yeah, keep going. And then Boston. No, 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 no. I, I was, I mean, you're exactly it, that we're not, we're not thinking through the, the big impact. And what did we really get from, from the ethics training um, that we're doing? And I, I think so much of it, we just don't know, because there's so much hidden in the data that we've never looked at that we're trying, still trying to understand. Got it. Okay. Right. And, and texting in Boston. Boston, it's the best. So <laughs> I, I thought Vala would appreciate that. I agree. I totally agree. I mean, why would you go anywhere else? It's <laughs> like, look at all the schools we have. It's, you know, I, I'm biased because I've, I've done, this is my seventh startup and five of them have been with MIT people. Um, and, and so I'm, um, you know, and, and Lycos was Carnegie Mellon. So, you know, uh, it wasn't Boston, but it was, uh, fed by a lot of Bostonian, uh, influence. And I, I just, it, we don't have any problem recruiting people. The people that want to be in Boston stay there. And so, and there's tons of great people that come there for school and never want to leave. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're, we're going to wrap this up. We are with Jenna Eggers. So you were talking to one of the smartest people in applied AI, and she's the CEO at Narrow Logic. You can follow her on Twitter at J-E-G-G-E-R-S. And then we're going to talk about another country that maybe you want to create a startup next. All right. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Jenna. Thank you, guys. Y'all are awesome. Thank you. Thank you so hey, much. Enjoy Dubai. Enjoy safe travels. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of the smartest CEOs, you're right. Uh, and she's super accessible and, uh, you know, she's an educator. So, um, I've, I've, I've watched her speak at several conferences and she's amazing. And, uh, so again, uh, speaking of amazing guests, our next guest is Ots Vatter, uh, the managing director of the first government startup, uh, focusing on e-residency. Ott took up the mantle of managing director this year in 2019, having previously held the position of deputy director. He was responsible for scaling up the e-residency program through strategic partnerships and product development from 2015 to present day. He speaks around the world at some of the most high profile events, uh, including alongside the president of Estonia about how digital initiatives like e-residency can pave the way for stronger economic and social relations worldwide. You can follow his work on Twitter at O-T-T-V-A-T-T-E-R. Welcome Ott to the Strop TV. What's up, guys? Great to be here. <laughs> hey, uh, we are so excited to have you here. You know, we were graced by your former uh, Prime Minister President, uh, Tomas Hendrik, uh, when he was at our event celebrating the 70th anniversary of human rights, uh, as well as the 50% uh, of the world being connected to the internet. And we had a little bit of a taste of what was going on, but let's talk about e-residency and why did Estonia pioneer this? So you have to understand that Estonia is a super small country compared to the US. We're 1.3 million. Our history hasn't been too kind to us. And we don't have too much natural resources. So after the Soviet Union collapsed, we had to kind of stand out somehow. And IT was one of the ways that we had the education, we had the kind of knowledge um, and we pioneered some great decisions. We put uh, cable connection to public schools in a very early stage in 1990s and that kind of pioneered this uh, this wave of uh, developers who actually you know made Kazaa, made Skype and now they have kind of prolonged their uh, their effect to the startup scene. 
And uh, e-residency is kind of extension of this, uh, this hardware in the sense that uh, we have had an ID card in Estonia for nearly 16 years. Uh, it's wow. very simple. It's, it's, it's a plastic document with, uh, with a photo on it and a chip on it. And e-residency is kind of uh, the, the extension of this card to non-citizens. So we use this card ourselves daily. We can't imagine a life without it. It's kind of our key to our society. If we lose the key, we're in a very bad situation. So e-residency was something to give to others, not only citizens, so that they could also partake in our digital society. No, so that's amazing. In the spirit of, you know, so it's in the spirit of decentralization of, and mobility of people, decentralization of companies, removing borders, uh, and really giving access uh, using technology. And, and so how big is the e-residency program? How old is it? How big is it? And you know, how many e-residents are there, for example? So we're celebrating our fifth year. So uh, it's the interview itself or the video that we're having is, is, is in a very appropriate time horizon because 1st of December was our fifth anniversary. Oh, and uh, uh, thank you. Uh, we have currently over 60,000 e-residents, so 63,236 to be very exact. <laughs> and, and these guys have created more than 10,000 companies to Estonia. Uh, 10,000 companies, 10,000 companies. That's amazing. Wow. And, and that's actually interesting, right? I mean, a lot of these companies have been, yeah, and a lot of these companies have been, you, you've got some great startups that have come along the way from Comskill, the Pipedrive, to Taxify, things like TransferWide. I mean, some very interesting uh, companies all across the landscape uh, in, in, in different industries. Um, as you think about that and, and the benefits uh, that actually come in, uh, why, why are people coming into the e-residency program? Is there something about being an e-resident that's different, especially from the countries that they're, they're coming from? I mean, what, what are they missing and, and, and what, what's, you know, what's some of the uh, interest there? I think what we're seeing is that uh, like companies, like actual competitors and apps, uh, we are competing for our clients. The same is happening with governments. The same is happening with countries. We are competing for the best citizens. And if a country can't actually offer the best services or the environment is not the best, then the people want to move because we have so many opportunities to actually partake in different services and, and different kind of uh, environments. So if I want to live in another place that has a more you know, favorable climate, I will, I will move there. If there's some country that actually offers me a way to create a company in you know, 20 minutes, do it from the comfort of my home. Uh, if I'm an entrepreneur and I value my time, that's the way I want to go. This is amazing. It all started with Edward Lucas. I mean, he's one of the uh, senior editors of the Economist. He was actually what, your first e-resident? So. Correct. First one, and then actually uh, Tim Draper and Steve Jewettson uh, were, were followed. Wow. Not, not a bad list there. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so our previous guest right before you was dialing in from Dubai. My understanding is Dubai has announced an e-residency program. Lithuania is also planning to launch an e-residency program. Five years into this journey, did you expect more countries would follow Estonia's footsteps in terms of e-residency? And what can you say about growing interest outside of Estonia to adopt your innovation and your program? 
the interest is definitely there. And uh, I believe that there are probably about five countries that we know nothing about currently. So Dubai and Lithuania have been the ones, you know, openly coming up with, uh, with this kind of concept. Um, but we, we definitely see a lot of interest and, uh, and we do help the, the other governments as well. And it's not in, in its concept, it's not anything new that you could create a company using um, a power of attorney or, uh, you know, physically fly somewhere to create a company. But what we did differently was to put a digital identity, attach a kind of uh, virtual verification to the process, which means that you can do it from anywhere in the world. The only thing that we require is that you guys actually, when you apply, you, after you get accepted, you come to our embassy. So we actually verify you physically. There is one face-to-face -face meeting because it's the highest form of, um, of security of a national document. It's not just a piece of plastic. It's, it's something you know, similar to a passport that is issued by the Estonian government. So we need to meet you once and then you get you know, the card and then you can actually access our digital platforms. Right. And what people don't realize is it's not an actual residency, right? I mean, I, I, you can't stay in Estonia with the e-residency, correct? Yes, you can travel, um, you can vote, and you won't become uh, an actual resident of Estonia. Yes. Got it. And, and it doesn't, you, don't, you don't avoid paying taxes in your actual country. You still have to do that, correct? Absolutely. There's two different things. You're a personal tax resident of U.S. no matter what. But when you oh yeah, they company, track us down everywhere. They oh, know yeah, exactly you, where we are. We, we have more IRS <laughs> agents than uh, than I think in some some in some countries' militaries. <laughs> uh, but the, but the difference is that when you create a company to Estonia, that company is automatically a tax resident of Estonia. But when you create your value somewhere else, you know the rule generally is where you create your value, you should pay your tax. So it's definitely no tax haven program, but it's a virtual identity to make your entrepreneurial life easier. True. And it's also not a citizenship just for people to recognize as well, right? You're still, Absolutely. you're not going to get consular support from the Estonian government, right? So To actually be a citizen of Estonia, you have to learn the Estonian language, which has 14 tenses. So it will take a while. <laughs> and, and it's not a travel document either, right? I can't use this to travel with and, and be like, like my visa, right? Or something like that. That's, that's the different with Estonians. So we have a photo on the card so we can travel inside EU with the card. But e-residence, it's only virtual. E only virtual. E only virtual. What's cool. Yeah, I just want to just, I just say hit some of the myths that people always ask. Yeah, so yeah, I that clarification is important. What surprised you most in this five-year journey? I mean, did you expect 10,000 companies to be established uh, in, in such a short amount of time? You know, what are, what are some of the, some of the lessons learned and perhaps the biggest surprise uh, now that you're, you know, a managing director of the program? The beginning stage of the program was that we had, you know, subsidiaries, daughter companies of, of uh, big, you know, EU companies, conglomerates in the Baltics or Estonia. And we thought that we'll make the life of, you know, the board members, foreign board members simple. We'll give them something that they can actually sign documents digitally, meaning they wouldn't have to fly to Estonia, for example. But when we soon discovered through, uh, through development was that there were actually so many more people who were interested in having a company in EU that they could manage remotely, uh, plus signing documents digitally. So we're actually giving a lot of people who didn't have the capacity to be entrepreneurs, the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. And what we didn't see was more conservative countries like Germany, France, who actually uh, have very rigid systems of creating companies, which take a lot of time and a lot of money so for them, this would be a simple way to actually conduct business. 
And then a third wave would be the digital nomads of the world who actually are never in one place. So they don't want to go to the IRS to fill, you know, tax reform like, like this uh, bunch of papers and, and sit in a queue for three hours. So these people can do everything online. I think the biggest surprise was how many people actually um, have this problem in the world. It is. I mean, there's so much bureaucracy, red tape and regulation to set up companies around the world. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that Draper was talking about, the fact that they can uh, help you. I mean, this was just a quicker way to actually get something up and running and, and actually be part of that entrepreneurial spirit. So, uh, so I mean, look, what's the benefit to Estonia? What happened? I mean, were you able to build out the tax base? I mean, able to attract more people into Estonia? Uh, you know, I mean, you wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't uh, this successful. So. So the, the core uh, underlying benefit for us was that we had the infrastructure in place. We didn't have to invent anything new. So we kind of removed the photo from here and make, made it available for, uh, for foreigners. So it was a no-brainer for us. Uh, but what was surprising was that actually the soft power aspect of this program, uh, people who wanted to be e-residents, not, not because they wanted to create companies or they had a need for it, but they wanted to stay in touch with Estonia. They saw that there was so much digital innovation happening that they wanted to be a part of it somehow. And this is also a security guarantee for Estonia, who has a big hairy neighbor. And uh, in case something you know, should go wrong, this is you know, early adopter, 60,000 people who are very, very voiceful in, um, <laughs> in, in, the, in the web. So the benefits are there. There are tax benefits, there are economical benefits, but I think surprising facts are the soft power and, uh, and the security guarantee. Uh, can you uh, share some of your uh, most famous e-residents? Uh, and, and a follow-up question, give us insight in terms of the future roadmap. What are you looking to, in terms of enhanced services and capabilities to the, to the existing program? I believe the most famous e-residents are, of course, uh, politicians, uh, Angela Merkel, Shinzo Abe. Wow. Uh, uh, we have the Pope, who is an e-resident. Oh, we yeah. have, Pope. We have Pope, Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Gates is an e-resident. Oh, wow. So uh, there are a lot of uh, famous people, but probably, you know, disclaimer. better than an Amex Centurion card here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Why get an Amex Black card? Get an e-resident card, you know. You're, you're Exchange off. now. <laughs> <laughs> probably they don't use it to run a company uh, in Estonia. That's what we openly say. Uh, but it's cool having them a part of the program. Hey, uh, most for 100 euros for five years, it's a good deal. So It is, I right? Know, I can't imagine when like Bill Gates' application comes through the wire. You guys, that's, that's, <laughs> Can you come and verify that's really Bill Gates? I mean, they had to actually go in and to get their pictures taken. Think about that. <laughs> so full, full disclaimer, our prime minister actually met, uh, met Bill and gave him the card personally because it has to be the representative of the government. And, you know, oh, sure. prime minister is, is quite good at <laughs> So regarding the roadmap, where it can go, I think I mentioned before that governments are going to compete for citizens anyway. And, and for us, it has been easier because we're a small country. We came out of the, the occupation of the Soviet Union, so we had nothing and, uh, and we've come this far. So I think next steps for e-residents will actually be residency. So people who will migrate to our country because we have a very simple tax system. We have you know, a startup ecosystem that is really booming at the moment. You mentioned some of the companies coming, coming out of the, the country. So we would like to actually get these people to come to Estonia physically. They don't have 
at the moment yep. it's very dark and at night for example the sun so uh, so we have a few few more innovations uh, coming up Ray, you uh, need to do a disrupt TV in Estonia. We need to. Uh, <laughs> we do. What can happen next year? Just, just we'll do a trip to. I would be happy to host you guys. <laughs> we'll do a trip to Davos, and then we'll uh, head over to Estonia afterwards. You know, <laughs> that'll be the way to. That'll be able to make this happen. Hey, so so it is a good question about what's next, right? I mean, you guys have been basically a public digital disruptor, right? And when you think about this, you know, not only in the tax base. Um, what are other innovative services, right? Because you look around the world, I mean, government services aren't necessarily known as the best, the most efficient, uh, you know, the most, you know, citizen-friendly, business-friendly. Uh, you know, what, what are things that you've been hearing from other e-residents that say, you know, we wish you could do this? So. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there are a lot of things that e-residents would like us to do. Uh, they would actually like us to have a minister for e-residents that would represent themselves or they would have a parliamentary, uh, you know, uh, representation actually that would represent e-residents because wow. currently we have 60k e-residents. We have 1.3 million people. Let's imagine that we have 600k e-residents and 1.3 million people. Should the voices of e-residents be heard? Wow. Uh, and watch what are the consequences of this because these people are not actually living in Estonia. So there are a lot of uh, interesting uh, kind of ethical questions uh, to this and, and how the world is going to play out. In terms of technical innovation, of course, uh, we have a principle called data once. So once you actually get the data, we shouldn't ask it again. So we have it in our country. We know who you are. We know what you do. So we shouldn't you know, give you a bunch of papers and ask for your name and your birth date every year for every application. That's something that we're working on currently as well. Uh, now, how do citizens feel about that, right? I mean, because like you've got true res citizens and then you got the e-residents folks. I mean, are they worried that, uh, do they want to see more e-residents become citizens or um, are they worried about e-residents in general? So currently, um, actually there are more e-residents applying for e-residency weekly and monthly than there are actually birth rate of Estonian citizens, <laughs> which is a very interesting concept. Uh, that being said, you know, main portion of e-residents still are not here physically. So probably they shouldn't have that kind of rights and these kind of representation because they are virtual users of our platforms. Are you getting more people to speak uh, the Estonian language as well? We're trying, but it's a very difficult language. <laughs> it's a hard language, actually. <laughs> so um, my, my last question to you is, you know, is, is there one thought that you would uh, like to leave with our listeners today, you know, perhaps you're pitching to entrepreneurs that are listening and uh, you want to uh, inspire them to think about not only becoming new residents, but potentially thinking about, you know, having their business in Estonia. If you're tired of filling in physical papers uh, and actually waiting in line uh, and you have multiple customers all around the world, so check out Estonia, it might be a useful place for you. And come here physically as well, during summertime, mostly, <laughs> and check out what we have here. That's great. Well, hey, Aita, I think that's how you say it in Estonia. Ah, perfect. <laughs> Aita, and uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show. We are here uh, live with one of the pioneers in terms of uh, digital governments and the e-residency program. And we are here with Ott Walter, and you can follow him 
uh, on Twitter at O-T-T-V-A-T-T-E-R. Ott Botcher, uh, the managing director at E-Residency for Estonia. So sign up now and uh, get check in on the benefits. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Ott. Thank you, Ott. Thanks for being Thanks, on Very guys. Late from Tallinn. Thank you. So. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. You know, 62,000 e-residents in five years, uh, including the Pope. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I bet you our next guest has an e-residency at Estonia, given how worldly he is. Uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if our next guest <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, has e-residency. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll have to check it out. We'll have to see if he does. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, our privilege uh, to have one of our favorite guests Coming back to uh, uh, Disrupt uh, TV, Byron Reese is the CEO and publisher of the technology research company GigaOM, which most of us, all of us know, and the founder of several high-tech companies. Um, Byron has obtained or has pending patents in disciplines uh, uh, as varied as crowdsourcing, content creation, and psychographics. Uh, the websites that he has launched, which is, covers the intersection of technology, business, science, and history, have together received over a billion visitors. Uh, certainly Ray, myself, and almost all of our guests would be part of that billion population. Byron is the author of an acclaimed book, Infinite Progress, and his newest book, The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. He's a terrific follow on Twitter at B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. -E -E. Welcome back, Byron, to Disrupt TV. Hey, so good to be here again, guys. Hey, thanks a lot for being here. And, you know, this is your fifth appearance. You came in on January 2017. You know, we've been hearing a lot about what's going on. And you really, we want to talk, hear more about your predictions uh, that you have coming in. And uh, I think one of them is interesting here, really about what we want to do with this interesting technology and what we have the people to actually do uh, is going to be interesting, uh, given the talent and the resources. So let's talk about that first prediction. But while we're doing that, let's check in on your, you're cooking up something good in the uh, oven. What was going on there? <laughs> well, I tried making candy pork belly, but it didn't uh, come out. It was my first time to try it. I thought, you know, the holidays are coming. What's the most op opulent thing I can make? And I got to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> well, if, if, if there was a sentient AI kitchen, would they be able to solve this gap between what we want to do with AI and what we have the people actually do? <laughs> I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> but hey, let's talk about that first prediction, seriously. Um, and, and that's a very interesting one that, that you have here. The gap between what we want to do with AI and what we have the people to do will widen, not shrink, even though more people can use the even though more people can use the technology. And we have all these dystopian views of like, AI is gonna kill us, AI is gonna take away our jobs, and, and you're saying something different here, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that if, that, that as we kind of get accustomed to being in a world where we understand this technology better, you can look around your enterprise and come up with any number of things that would be great projects. And the list of projects that we can do now is vastly more than the people we have. Even though, you know, more and more people are, are learning to use these tools, the toolkits are getting much easier. Mm. Um, tons and tons of people are kind of being onboarded with being able to use the technology. Just the, the window of, the, the amount of opportunity available is just going big and, and I, don't, I don't think it's, we're ever gonna be able to, to do it all. Like, if you say what human activities can benefit by studying data and making projections, it's almost everything. And we just don't have enough people to do it all.
So I believe you crossed your 100th episode, uh, a, a podcast specifically targeting some of the best and brightest uh, artificial intelligence practitioners and authors and researchers. Do they agree with you? It, 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 is the majority of the 100 experts you've talked to regarding AI, do they agree that there'll be more new jobs created by AI and it will dwarf job losses? and that the opportunity is really a positive one looking forward? Well, opinion is split on that question. So <laughs> I'll tell you three things that I ask them all. Um, the first one is, do you believe we can create general intelligence? And so general intelligence is like, you know, the AIs you see in the movies. It's as smart and versatile as a human. And I ask all 100, do you think we can create general intelligence? And 95 of them say yes which is really interesting because it's a technology we don't know how to do. And the reason 95 people say yes is because they have one single assumption, and that assumption is that people are machines. And if you start with the assumption that people are machines, your brain is a machine, then someday we'll build a mechanical you. And that's, that's the whole basis for the belief that we can build general intelligence. The interesting thing is when I put that question on my website, only 15% of the general public believe they're machines. And so it's this huge disconnect. And then the second question I ask them uh, is, what is AI? And I've never gotten the same answer twice because we don't all agree on what intelligence is. Nobody knows what it, what it really is. It's quite a contentious issue among people uh, in that world. Like there were probably some awkward Thanksgiving dinners if that topic came up. What exactly is intelligence? And then the final question I ask them is that one. Are we gonna have a shortage of humans brought about by all of this opportunity or are the humans going to, you know, be outsourced by uh, the AI? And, and I would say uh, that people are split on that. I will say, generally speaking, the closer you are to writing code, the harder you know how it is to do anything, and the less likely you believe that um, we're going to have huge job loss. I'm squarely in the camp that says it's kind of impossible that we're going to lose jobs over this, net jobs. Uh, in fact, I, you know, I, I always, I always pull both, both of them out and give them a full airing, but uh, probably my bias on that question always pokes through because I don't think it's possible. I'm amazed that you spoke to a hundred leading experts around the world and you have a hundred different definitions. That's uh Yeah. That's yeah. Because there's two wrinkles. There's what is intelligence? And then there's why is artificial intelligence artificial? Because it could be artificial in the sense that we made it the yeah. way, our, but it could also be artificial in the sense that it's just faking it. Like artificial turf isn't really grass, it just <laughs> looks like it. And, and so there's not even agreement on whether AI is intelligent, mimics intelligence, or if there's no difference between those two things. You know, those are deep fundamental questions. And, and let's go through your predictions. You've got five, and let's, let's lay them all out, actually, so, so everybody has, a, has context as to what you're talking about here. So, What, what are the other ones? The new jobs created by AI will dwarf job losses by it. So, Absolutely. Uh, so I would make that case the following way, and that, and that is the, uh, the big question on everybody's mind. I would say two things about it. When the inter if you went back in time 25 years to when the Internet became popular and you said, what's this gonna to do to jobs? You would say, well, it's gonna put all the taxi drivers, I mean, it's gonna put all the, the uh, travel agents out of work, it's gonna put the stockbrokers out of work, 
It's going to put the yellow pages out of work. It's going to put the newspapers out of work. And you would have been right about every single one of them. But you would have missed Uber, Etsy, eBay, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, because we can only see what it will destroy, but we don't have the, the imagination to imagine what it's going to create. And so that's what it is with AI. When you, what the internet did is it lowered the cost of moving data to zero and the cost of performing operations on data to zero. And when you lower the cost of something to zero, people use more of it, and then they think of all these things to do with it. With AI, you're kind of reducing the cost of cognition to zero. And then you say, well, if that's free, what are all these, what can I do now? And the, the answer is you can do kind of anything. And I don't think it's a technology that only helps those at the top kind of, of the employment ladder. Anybody holding a device that's AI enabled becomes as smart as that device. And, and then people often also say, isn't it the case that the job loss is a lot of low-skilled jobs and that those people don't have the skills to do the new jobs. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of kind of how it all works. What happens is technology creates new jobs kind of at the top and they're filled, backfilled by, by people really close to there. Kind of, and then those jobs are backfilled and then those jobs are backfilled all the way down the line. The question really boils down to can everybody do a job a little harder than the one they have? And I think the answer to that is yes. And yeah, that's why in this country, last sentence I'll say, that's why we've had 250 years of full employment and rising wages and technological, you know. You know, that answer is yes, but I'm getting worried that we've got politicians and policymakers that are entering policies of scarcity as opposed to the policies of abundance, right? They're thinking in very, very different terms. And, and we've got a tough job educating folks that, you know, these are abundance. It's not about scarcity. It's about opportunity. It's not about, you know, fear. And, and I, I think we're entering a very dangerous time. Uh, well, I mean, what do you think about that? I, I don't worry too much about politics because it, it doesn't ever lead. Well, I shouldn't say ever. It doesn't usually lead in these kinds of things. Politicians like try to see where the crowd is running and then they get in front of that and they keep running and, you know, like, follow me. But it's like, this is a juggernaut that is going. Yeah. And, and people who don't understand AI don't understand but we got regulations, right? We got weird regulations that are going to pop up with unintended consequences, which we were talking about a little bit earlier in the show. Yeah. Would you say that's happened with the internet or not? Less so than in other areas, but less so in the U.S. and the Western world. But we're starting to see nationalism pop in, where people are trying to protect their internets, and China's exporting their version of the internet, which means every dictator can now be in control, right? I mean, it's a very different kind of a yeah. approach. So that's, that's, that's what I'm more worried about. That is frightening. No, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Byron, should we be thinking about the relationship um, of an employee and, and company? When I think about, you know, my son is nine. By the time he's eligible for uh, getting a driver's license, it's possible that you will have great advancements in terms of autonomous vehicles. My relationship with the car today is I'm the driver. I drive the vehicle to go from A to B. When my son is in a car 10 years from now, the relationship may be that he's a traveler. It's the car that's driving him. So the relationship between man and machine, as you outsource the sense and response and thinking away from the person and to a system or machine changes the relationship. And in this case, a traveler will have 
more free time to do things, be creative, do work, whatever they want to choose to do. Now, as enterprise becomes autonomous, not just, you know, your calendar is now very smart, your email, the texts are suggested to you, virtual assistants, more and more, the advancements we see in a vehicle will be advancements we see in terms of uh, a future of autonomous business. And now how does that change the relationship where you're not driving the business, the business is driving you because of advanced software applications that will guide sales, service, marketing, and all these different lines of business and, uh, that, that, that will be impacted by AI. Should we be thinking about, you know, what is there left for a person to do in an autonomous enterprise and how does the relationship change between the stakeholder and, 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 and the business? Well, that, that is all, those are all very good questions. And, and, you know, with regard to autonomous cars and vehicle, I don't know that it was ever a great idea to let a 16 year old drive 4,000 pounds of metal down the road. I agree with you. Um, I've got that problem coming up in a few weeks. Yeah. One that, like, if, if we invented self-driving cars at the very beginning, people would say, rip that out, put a person back there. You know, they, they're far more reliable. But, you know, you ask very good questions, but I, I, I try to look at these, I keep, I have a very simple way of looking at this, which is um, these technologies all increase human productivity and they simply do that. And that is always good, always good. You cannot find a bad case for it. If you think it's bad, then, you know, we should pass laws that people have to work with one arm tied behind their back or with one eye closed or intoxicated or so you know we should lower everybody but we don't want to these all of these these technologies you're talking about some, some countries are doing that, so. <laughs> that like that no it's true but you have to say is that is that the juggernaut of, of the future is that what's going to happen mm -hmm. what we have seen is that for 250 years we've developed technology that increases human productivity and that's always been good for everybody yeah. And this technology, except for performance enhancing drugs, so fair enough. Over the long <laughs> term, and the same thing with AI. The same thing with AI. It uh, it increases productivity, and that yeah. is always good. So, and I also go to bed at night knowing that when this world emerges, there'll be a million smart guys like you two staying up every night, <laughs> saying, "How can I use this new technology to do great new things?" And and things we can't imagine, like ways. So many of these questions we ask are going to seem so provincial in the future Absolutely. because in retrospect, it always seems obvious. Absolutely. Like Uber seems obvious. eBay Absolutely. seems obvious. But in 19, you know, 90, whatever, it wasn't. It was like, wow, I can sell this stuff in my attic? I can just <laughs> get a, I can get on the car with a stranger? Hey, my medallion was worth 1.2 million. Now it's worth like 250,000. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's a, Different issue, of course. Uh, university degrees are going to be viewed as medallions. <laughs> you think that? I, I don't. I, I, I would defend the university degree in the future. The universities are a 12th century French invention that hasn't changed in 900 years, frankly. And so you have to say, well, why is it that through the Black Death and the Protestant Reformation and World Wars of fascism, communism, and all the rest, it never changes? And so I think it must be doing something useful, even if it's not apparent to us what it is. But, but, but Byron, we should do a coffee talk series, like you, me, and Val. Like, <laughs> and, and I go on the road in every I tent and city and just do breakfast as a, as and a have these kind of conversations. As my 17-year-old daughter is looking at options, 
she looked at so far, I think, 10 schools. And the average tuition across these 10 institutions is around 73000 per year for undergrad. I, I don't know how you Let's can- Let's give her a quarter million for a startup and see how she does. Which one's better? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the trajectory and and it's uh, and it's not a great product you're not finishing in on time you don't necessarily have the skills to be productive right out of you know out of you know after and so all of that is true though i mean i would turn it around and say okay they do a poor job they're not entrepreneurial they're not good business people and yet for 900 years i know i know they've they have endured every single thing the bubonic plague. Can, I mean, every bubonic plague when you've got a college admission scandal. The question is, <laughs> all of us have a supercomputer in our pocket. Can we say that in terms of access to information and insights to you? Well, I used to think that. I used to think the problem was people didn't have access to information. Everybody has access to information. That turns out that was not the problem. I mean, there's still people who think the world's flat. Uh, and so it is the problem is still the people is what you're saying. More, <laughs> it's got to be something more than access to information. That, fundamentally, it's a, that's an entrepreneur view of an education that it's, it's it's like a database you're trying to fill up. But evidently, mm. it does something very different. And I don't pretend to understand it. I just look at it and say that's not going away. If 900 years it survived all that, it's not, it's not even going to change. It's not even going to change. Well, hey, you well, know, you let me hit the. Still, like, wear robes in graduation and have diplomas printed in Latin on vellum. <laughs> I mean, these are not highly adaptive organizations. No, sure. you're right. You're right. Well, hey, let's hit your other ones. Your other predictions were general intelligence will not get any closer. We touched that. Efforts to use AI to spot fake news will probably fail. Let's let's go deeper on that one. And the number of things that we think of as AI will shrink as the technology becomes more commonplace. We talked about it. Let's talk about AI spotting fake news will probably fail because that's that's a hot topic at this moment about deep fakes and using AI to combat deep fakes. I mean, five years ago, I started a company called Knowingly to solve, <laughs> I thought, the biggest problem on the web, which is you don't know what to believe or what not to believe. And this was before the term fake news even was invented. It, nothing. I just knew that you can read something online and not know if it's true or not. And I was like, that's the biggest problem on the internet. I'm going to solve it. And it turns out, it's, it turns out that while there is a truth in an abstract sense, um, there are, you know, two plus two is four. We can all agree on that. But does lowering taxes um, boost the economy? Does regulation of X cause effect Y? It, it turns out that so many things in our world are, are such complex systems that cause and effect within them. It's very hard to discern. Yeah. And so most statements live in a gray area between truth and lies. And I've wrapped my head against solving that because I would love to be able to highlight a sentence and have it be true or false. Like, <laughs> like that's what we want. And, and then if it's true, I can click on it and I can see all the citations on it. I can, I can find dissenting views by just clicking on them, but we don't have that. We unfortunately, you know, we, we, we came on the internet and we said, let's get rid of the gatekeepers. That's, that's good because it democratizes everything. And boy, it was good. We used to have, you know, you had your choice of any three news channels, any three news shows you wanted to watch at five o'clock. Like you got to choose which of those three you watch. Um, now you've got a million. Of them. But, so we lowered the, and I'm all for lowering the gatekeepers. I, I agree. But unfortunately, the cacophony 
uh, came out and, and the ability to tell the difference between truth and untruth vanished. I hope someday there's a flight back to Brands, a voluntary flight back to, um, to Brands that, that I will pay for a trusted news source because I can trust it and I will pay for it because right now truth doesn't necessarily pay any better than lies and that's the problem. It may even pay worse. Lies spread around, you know, they're very enticing and viral and truth is it's oftentimes very boring. And, and so I hope at some point we all sicken of it enough that we're, so I'll pay six bucks to read something I can believe and not have to just ask myself, well, who put this out there and why and, and what's their agenda and all of that? You know, well, well, maybe the answer is making sure that we use AI to help people do critical analysis and then they can come up their opinion. Um, and, and at that point, because maybe there are no trusted news sources or trusted sources anymore. Um, and you hope the AI is also not tainted and trusted. <laughs> the irony behind that. I mean, I still get people who send me links that are in Snopes. You can type whatever the, the thing is, space Snopes, and it's the first result. 15 seconds of work, you can debunk the craziest things. And yet, people don't. And so why do you I'm think still filling that? up my gas with my cell phone on? People don't seem to like that, but hey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you light up. I'll give you the last word. So go ahead, Barbara. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I I, I we focused on some negative things, but I'm I'm a techno optimist. I believe that uh, we're on a pathway as a species. Uh, you know, we we've always had too little of everything. We've always had too little food, too little medicine to a little education and that technology is a way to overcome scarcity like you said and the future we await will be one of abundance like you said and so i just think it's you know sometimes bumpy to get there i agree, I agree. we are here with byron reese one of the smartest folks looking into the future written a book on ai ceo and publisher and author at gigaom we need to do a breakfast series with you me and vol at some point uh <laughs> and thank you so much for being on the show and today's theme is bacon so we'll go there later <laughs> at some other point. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You're Happy Friday, Byron. Uh, Thank you so much. I'd love to come back, guys. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, hey, anytime. The fastest 20 minutes we have on this show ever is when we have Byron on. Um, he's just brilliant. We're in quantum speed here. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. Was he here or was he not? I mean, that was yeah, fast. Honestly, <laughs> uh, it's amazing how, how smart he is um, and um, well-spoken. Uh, okay. So so uh, next week is our final show of 2019. So we will end with episode 172. We have, it's funny, I have evangelist in my title, but he was the original evangelist. We have Guy Kawasaki, uh, chief evangelist at Canva, and, and one, of the, one of our favorites who's going to be on the show. We have uh, Joanne Moretti, who's the founder CEO of J-Curve Digital, former CEO, CMO at Dell, former CMO at J-Bill one of the brightest people that Ray and I know and an ex uh, extraordinary person. Dave Evans, co-founder and CEO of, um, what is it? Uh, fic fictive? Fictive, fictive. fictive yes. So. And uh, uh, Liz Miller, vice president, principal analyst at Constellation, another incredible CMO, uh, analyst, researcher, and digital transformation expert. We'll, uh, we'll do our, uh, Ray and I will do a, a year-end recap. Uh, we'll be back on Friday, January 10th. So we're going to have, um, you know, obviously uh, Christmas, New Year's, uh, and we'll be back January 10th. While we're off air, you know, we encourage you to, you know, check out SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, Vimeo. Um, we're broadcast across a couple dozen radio stations. So there's plenty of Disrupt TV content with nearly 400 unique guests that have been on our show. 
that you can uh, connect with and learn from. So it's um, we, we got to do some AM radio, FM radio promos at some point, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So and and we'll reflect during the time uh, Ray and I in terms of how we can improve the show. We welcome you to recommend guests. Go to Disrupt TV show. Connect with our world class producer Aubrey. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and recommend guests, uh, and we'll do our best to get them on the show. So yeah, last I know. if you're a CEO, startup sure. founder, VC, if you're doing something interesting, author book, let us know and uh, definitely reach out to our, uh, disrupt TV show handle on Twitter, or you can write to Vala and myself. So thanks a lot, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy holidays. We'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. Mm -hmm.